For the evening, Jack from San Diego. My name is Jack, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. <laughs> you know, I was getting ready for this uh, this this 45-minute talk, and uh, I went to a meeting on Monday, and I was talking to John after the meeting. I said, "Yeah, I'm going to be the speaker." And uh, he says, "What? The 10-minute speaker?" I said, "No, I don't think so. I think I'm going to be the 45-minute speaker." I said, "Yeah, but uh, Al's going to call me during the week, and so I should get it all wired up." Show you how obsessive and compulsive and sick I can be. I didn't have Al's number, but he doesn't have a cell phone. I didn't have the roster for money meetings. So unfortunately, this program of AA, this network that we have, I called Don, and Don it took a half an hour to find it, and I called Al. Al wasn't there. His mother-in-law was there. I said, would you have him get back to me? So the whole time I'm thinking, I know that I'm supposed to be the 45-minute speaker. I know it in my heart of hearts. But John said, you know, aren't you the 10-minute speaker? And then I'm saying, you know what, maybe I am the 10-minute speaker. (laughs) Al calls me up about 6.30, says, yeah, you're the 45-minute speaker, so here I am. (laughs) I have a sobriety date of May 1st, 1983, which shows you how sick I truly am. I've got 25 years, 3 months, and 29 days of sobriety. But that's also 9,253 days. It's also 1,321 weeks. It's also 222,072 hours. And I can go into minutes and seconds, but that just shows you how sick I am and compulsive. Okay, what I'm supposed to be talking about for the next 45 minutes is, in a general way, what it was like, what happens, and what it's like today. And then I go into 45 minutes of detail. And I'm supposed to be talking in a general way of what's, what it's all about. Um, I was born in Niagara Falls, New York, on January 9, 1951. It was the same day that uh, uh, Richard Nixon was born in a different year, also uh, Crystal Gale, and also Jimmy Page, who plays lead guitar for Led Zeppelin. <laughs> so I have a bunch of people that are like cool people. And, the, and my, a friend of mine did an astrological chart of me at, at January 9, 1951. If you overlay that astrological chart with Richard Nixon, it's almost exact. So Richard Nixon and I have the same composition, so that shows you how sick I truly am. <laughs> Growing up in Niagara Falls in the 1950s was a trip. It really was. I lived on the corner of uh, 25th and Welch Avenue in Niagara Falls, New York. And if I went, seriously, if I walked out of my door, turned left, I crossed an alley and I hit a bar. Across the street from that bar was another bar. If I turned left and went down the street towards 27th Street, I hit one bar in the middle of the block, another bar on the other corner, on the other side of the street, one at the corner. If I turned left again, I hit another one on the corner. And if I turned left again, I hit another three bars. In the span of a block, there must have been eight or nine. So... Obviously, Niagara Falls was a drinking town. It was a drinking town. Um, I didn't think anything of... I thought normal drinking was what my family did as drink, drinkers when I was growing up. My father was an alcoholic who died of the disease. Uh, his, his brother was an alcoholic who died of the disease. My uncle was an alcoholic. Uh, we've had it throughout the entire family. I thought it was normal. We used to go to a cottage. Niagara Falls, New York, is right on the border with Canada. We used to go to the cottage every weekend. And I thought normal drinking was that everybody brought a case of beer per person per day plus a bottle of, of Rye Kessler's 
So you, uh, for every day. So three days, they'd have nine. Three guys would go to the go to the cottage, and they'd have nine cases of beer and three fifths of Kessler's to drink. And that's what I was growing up with. That's what I thought was normal drinking. I probably got drunk the first time when I was five years old. We'd have a party at our house, and I would pick up all the beer bottles, and I'd drink the beer bottles. And by the end of it, I was drunk, and so everybody thought it was so cute because I was five years old and alcoholic. But you know what? I can even I can honestly say that I didn't like the taste of, of beer when I was five years old. And that's kind of like a bitter thing for a kid to have, but that once again shows that I'm a little different than normal people because I thought it was great. I thought it was great to, to, to drink, and I loved the taste of it. Um, my uh, uncle and my father used to go to the cottage, like I said, and, and uh, I used to sit and watch them drink, and I used to see my uncle almost burned on the cottage when he got so drunk that he used to smoke a cigarette, and, and the cigarette went, he fell asleep drunk, and the cigarette went into the side of the, the, uh, the couch, and it almost set the cottage on fire. Boy, you know, and I also was a Roman Catholic growing up, and so I'm not only a recovering alcoholic, I'm a reco- recovering Roman Catholic. And I'm going I'm to talk a little bit, uh, uh, I was thinking about the program, and you know, I don't have a lot of the stories that a lot of people have. I don't have the stories of shooting 50 millimeter guns and, you know, at tanks and shooting people and doing all that stuff. I never served time in jail. I was a high level alcoholic. I got sober when I was 32 years old while I still had a productive job. Full batshit crazy, but I held a productive job. I held a productive job. Um, Anyway, when I was a Catholic, I can remember I, I was an altar boy. And, and when we were, so not only am I a recovering alcoholic, I'm a recovering Catholic. And what I remember when I was in the uh, church was that I was, I was um, doing the 40 hours devotion. And that's when uh, we used to have an altar boy in church from Friday night until Sunday morning while Jesus was supposed to be in, in, uh, dead before he was risen on Easter Sunday. And I can remember reading the... Uh, the uh, Latin Mass at that time it was Latin Mass so just trying to get through the four hour shift that I had from 12 o'clock to 4 o'clock in the morning I was reading Mea Cupa Mea Cupa Mea Maxima Cupa which translates to my, through my fault through my fault through my most grievous fault I went back and looked up the word grievous because I said that's a weird word grievous for me and I looked it up and I said you know what as much as I pissed God off I don't think I'd ever piss him off that bad to be grievous in my offenses towards God and I started getting in my head well religion is a bad thing and that's when I started turning off from religion. And this is in fourth grade, fourth or fifth grade. So I did that. In my teens, I started drinking when I was 16 years old. I listened to the drunkologues. I listened to all the tapes. It's really funny. Before I started, I went up to YouTube. You know you can go on YouTube and see Stevie Ray Vaughan's uh, Alcoholics Anonymous talk. I mean, it's in three parts. It's like, you know, his 45-minute talk. And I listened to it, and I said, you know what, outside of the fact that he was a rock guitar player, it's pretty much my story. So, you know, all of us have these same stories. It's not the thing that I love about AA and what I love about being in this program for so long is that this is the first place that I've ever been that I'm with people that are constitutionally alike. Like we're con- if you're not alcoholic, what the hell are you doing in a meeting on, Friday, on Saturday night listening to an alcoholic talk about alcoholism? I mean, it's crazy. So, <clears throat> anyhow, I just started drinking more and more when I was 16 years old and beer was my, my uh, alcoholic choice. But then when I started going to college is when I really got it. Um, my, my, my family upbringing, the reason I left my house, I left my house when I was 18 years old and went to Stony Brook, Long Island, where I went to school. And the reason I left it is because my mother and father were, were so uh, uh, 
she was an Al-Anoner and he was an AA. And you know, I love that saying, like which which one is the sicker of the two, the one that's throwing up or the one that's cleaning it that doesn't even have the the, the beauty of you know having the alcohol in their body and puking. You know, so, I don't know. My mother was probably sicker than my father was because she stayed in that relationship for a long period of time when she really shouldn't have done it. But I can remember being a little kid and I had a at the base of my bed. I had my father used to store a shotgun at the base of the bed, and when they have these fights, he would uh, come in the middle of the night. And, bust into my door and get the shotgun out. And I'd say, Dad, what are you doing? He says, oh, nothing, go back to sleep. And of course I knew what he was doing. It was one of these intimidations with my mother. So I can remember being so uh, crazy because of what was happening in my, in my life that I would do things that I could do uh, obsessively to somehow control people other than myself. I mean, the, the seeds of this alcoholism disease was very early in my life that if I breathe a certain way, in fours and eights and twelves and sixteenths, that's will, won't, will, won't, will, won't, will, won't. They're not going to fight. So I'd be sitting in my bed, breathing in sets of fours. And all of my, uh, alt, all of my little things that I won from Our, Our Lady of the Rosary would be, have to be facing forward, and my slippers would have to be on the lines. And if I did all these things, in the, in the, I mean, you talk about craziness. That is just total insanity. But I never got the help that I needed. So these seeds that I had, this alcoholic thinking, this alcoholic mentality that I somehow can control you or I can control you or I can control you, came at that really, really early age that I said, okay, if I breathe, and then I would rock. I mean, I'd rock myself to sleep. And, then, and not like a, uh, a, I wasn't two years old. I was eight or nine or ten years old. My brother and I had bunk beds on the top and bottom. My brother used to, when I'd be rocking, he'd lift the, the sheet up and spit at me to give me the stop. <laughs> Very supportive brother, okay, to get me to stop rocking myself to sleep. So anyway, you know, it's, it's so funny because I think about it now and I think, you know, that's all I wanted to do was be like my dad. And I used to run after my dad. When he'd go in the car and, 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 and go to the bars, I would run after him until he saw me and he would let me in the truck and I'd go to the bars. And I was such a cute kid, I used to get all this money from people because I was such a cute kid. And silver dollars and half dollars and back in those days, they used to have, they'd get paid and they'd get paid in coin. You know, coins of the realm, you know, and so they'd give me a 50 cent piece or a dollar and whatever. I had all this, I can remember, 1989 silver dollars and all this other stuff. My father took it all and drank it. I didn't have any of the money that I got when I earned, I earned by being so cute. By walking <laughs> so anyway, um, with that, with that in mind, I said, okay, good, I'm going to go away to school and things are going to get better because I'm going to do a locational fix. And so I went to Stony Brook when I was in 1969. I went to Stony Brook and, and I went into a haven of drugs and alcohol and rock and roll because Stony Brook was right outside of New York and it was the 60s and, you know, late 60s and early 70s. And I can remember walking in. Now, I, if you can believe this, I was so insane and so crazy in high school, but still I was the outstanding teenager of America. I was the most likely to succeed in my student yearbook. I was president of the student council. I was an honor student. I was a baseball player that had a scout. If I wanted to, I could have gone to play with the Cleveland Indians. All this stuff. And, and, and then I go home and put my slippers on the line so that my parents... I mean, it shows you the insanity. And that shows you how wonderfully creative we alcoholics truly are. That we can do that in spite of the fact that we're totally insane and totally out of whack with reality. At least that's from what I found from my own standpoint. So I leave to go to school thinking the locational fix is going to work. And once again, the first thing I saw when I went to my orientation was the, the president of the student council. He had hair down here. He had a full beard. He had a, a construction hat on with a propeller on the top of it that he was spinning. <laughs> and I said, wow, that's, you know, here I am, uh, you know, cut, clean cut. And, you know, from, uh, you know, 
Niagara Falls, New York, in Niagara Falls High School, and that's what I had. Uh, but I started to get acclimated. I got involved in uh, the movement, and I got involved with the stuff that was happening there, and I got involved with heavier and heavier drinking. And that's when we started to... Doing the parties where we would have bottles of wine and we would go and listen to the Almond Brothers and come back and pass out and and you know or you listen to the Grateful Dead or do whatever you were going to do. And my drinking, what I re, what I realize now is that my drinking became consistent. Before it used to be erratic. I would go and ha- I would work Friday and I'd go and have a beer when I was 16 years old with a steak and whatever. But now when I was at Stony Brook, even during the week when people weren't partying, I still had a refrigerator in my room and it's still a stock of beer. And it's still a stock of wine. And I would, I would drink every night. I would have at least two beers every night, and I would have wine and, and whatever during the day. And it was a consistent thing. And to me, that's when I started these, these things, now that I look back on it, and we'll get into that, what happened part of it. Um, and I had that consistency of drinking, which to me is a sign that I have a different constitution than a lot of other people. A lot of people... I could never understand. I don't know about anybody else. I could never understand when you go to dinner and you have a really good bottle of wine, you leave half the wine there. I mean, I never, I never could understand how normal people do that. I mean, they pay 20 30 40 50 Now it's $100 for a bottle of wine. They have a glass and a half, but they leave a half a glass and they leave. I couldn't do that. I'm like April. I'm like you. I, you know, I drink mine and then I drink theirs, you know, because that's the way it is. What are you doing wasting this stuff? And that's, to me, the difference between me and a normal person is because of the fact that I had this un- underwriting compulsion to continue to drink even though I knew I shouldn't be drinking. Okay, so what happened? So here I am, I'm in college, I go away to college, and, and as, as luck would have it, I get a master's degree, and then I get another master's degree, and then finally the, the lady that I'm, I'm working with says, you know, why don't you get the hell out of here and get, get a real job? So I did. I went, to, I went to Sacramento, and I got a real job, and I continued to drink there, and my drinking became uh, even more... Uh, more pronounced as I got older because I started drinking harder liquor. And that's the thing that I noticed. That I, my, my, day, my day at that point would be that I would come home from work and I would have a scotch. And then I'd have another scotch. And then I'd have a bottle of wine with dinner. And then I'd have brandy after dinner. And then I'd be wondering why my bathroom was rocking as I went to bed. That's the thing I think in sobriety that it's not uh, my inner ear problem went away. <laughs> You stop drinking and you don't have an inner ear problem anymore. I can, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who can remember standing in front of the, of the toilet in your house and you're going, holy shit, is this an earthquake or why am I on a boat or what it is because it's all rocking and it's not, not rocking. So anyway, uh, I was flying back from L.A. to uh, Sacramento and there was a job opportunity for me that God put in front of me. And once again, once I get into what happened to me, it's, it gets really spiritual and it's it. If you don't think this is a spiritual program, I don't think there's anything other than the spiritual side of this program because if it wasn't for the spiritual side of this program, I would not be here with 9,000 plus days. I would still be that batshit crazy kid or dead or doing something other than that. So I'm going to talk a lot about spirituality when I get in what happened. Uh, But anyway, there was a job opportunity for me to come down to San Diego to work with uh, one of the large companies here. I can't tell you what it is. But... uh, I took that job, and I turned 30 at that time. So I was working at the at California Energy Commission. I took the job at 30. And not that 30 meant anything to me, but I just quit my job, changed location, and got married in the span of three months. Okay, so I came down to Sacramento with a new bride. That's from Sacramento to San Diego with a new bride, and she looked just like Natalie Wood. She was beautiful, okay? But we were both alcoholics. 
at least I can only say that I was an alcoholic, and our whole, our whole courtship was based upon alcohol. You know, we, now we were into the bigger bottles of wine, okay, with the cheaper bottle labels, but it didn't matter because it still tasted okay. But you could, the two of us, I can remember sitting in the backyard in my house in Sacramento and drinking the entire, what is that, three liters? It's got to be, the huge, whatever the magnums are. We finished that whole thing off with wine and cheese in crackers. Because, you know, then if you ate too much food, then the buzz wouldn't be as good. Because at that point, it had it by that time, I was, I was pretty good at holding my liquor. I was pretty good at holding my liquor at that point in time. So it took a lot to get that buzz going for me. So, uh, and then we got married and we came down here and, you know, she had a 13-year-old daughter from her previous marriage, so that worked like a, uh, you know, third wheel on a, on, a, on a bicycle, you know. The two of them would, all, you know, once again, because of my obsessiveness and because of my low self-esteem and all that other crap that I had when I came here, I'd be thinking they were talking about me. You know, and then and they were, you know, kibitzing about me with their eyes and whatever and all that kind of stuff. It was just total insanity. I mean, that's the whole thing. I was insane. You know, and I love the definition that we have at these meetings. Okay, what is insanity? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. And that's what, that's what I did. I thought if I continue to do this to this person and whatever, then I was going to get this result. It didn't work the first time, but I'll do it ten times. Because maybe I just didn't do it right. Maybe I needed to do it a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right or whatever it was. But I needed to do that and I couldn't do it. Anyhow, uh, we got married and it was absolutely abominable. My job wasn't going good. I was really drinking. This was 1981. Uh, I came down and started working in April 1981. And I was separated from her. And uh, we, I was sitting, I'll never forget, I was sitting in a, a little 500 square foot uh, uh, condo, whatever little thing off of Mission Mission Valley, and it had a Murphy bed and a whole nine yards, and it had ants, completely full of ants. And I'd be drinking, and I'd be you know really abusing my body. I was. Do you ever do you ever see that movie Body Heat where the guy does the running and then he smokes a cigarette? Well, that's how I was. I was running marathons and then I drink and have a cigar. Insanity once again. So I'm running marathons and I'm doing it. Anyway, so I'm, I'm, I, they finally found me another, another place within the complex that I could move to because mine was ant infested. I had absolutely nobody I could turn to. Nobody could help me move. So I'm moving myself with a shopping cart from the first one to the second one because I had nobody to help me. And I can remember I put the little uh, micro, not the microwave, it was one of those little convection ovens, and I put a, a vegetarian lasagna in it. And it was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. And I'm going to talk about these moments of moments of clarity in my life because I had moments. I think I have a, now I'm getting more of a string of moments of clarity, but that was the first one that I can remember. A moment of clarity. I'm sitting there with a burnt lasagna because I had moved and the thing got burnt. And I'm sitting there and I got my scotch and it's three o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm by myself and I'm, I can remember looking at this table, this laminated, it was like laminated wood. I'm saying, you know, there's got to be something better than this. There's got to be something better than this, and I'm determined to find out what it was. And that was right before I got into the program of AA. Right after that, we had a thing called a stress management thing that our company put together. And during that stress management, they put the, uh, they gave us a rigorous uh, psychological profile. During that psychological profile, they happened to pull the 20, 20 steps of AA out, and we had to take that, and 20 steps of AA, they did a blood workup. They uh, talked to our co-workers, and it was really pretty extensive. I have the results. I'm not going to go to it now because I was thinking I was, I, my, of my 20, my 20 questions. Show you how compulsive and, and stupid I was. I only answered, I, I got a 35. 
Okay, I, I said, wow, that's great. I got seven questions out of 20. Yes. You know, I said, hey, that's great. I flunked. I'm not an alcoholic. And then I go down the bottom and says, if you have one of them, then you, gotta, you, know, you might have a problem. <laughs> Two, three, you're a full-blown alcoholic. All right? So that was one. And then, and then the guy, there was a guy, Bill, and I can't remember his last name, who was running the thing. And he said, you know what? You, we got your uh, psychological profile back. And uh, we got your blood work up, and you have a problem with some of your platelets. They're a little messed up. You have a little bit of something going on with your liver. And uh, your, uh, the way that you answered the questions, do you ever, did you ever think you were an alcoholic? You know, you know, I have to tell you, growing up and watching my father die of the disease and, and seeing him sitting on the floor and peeing his pants, laying on the floor, sleeping, watching television, peeing his pants, obviously, any time I took a drink, I said, am I an alcoholic or not an alcoholic? Am I really going to be like him? Am I going to end like him? Am I going to end up like him? He died with $3,316 to his entire name, and that included his car. I said, am I going to be like that when I die? So I said, yeah, I think I am an alcoholic. I think I have a problem with alcohol. He said, well, he says, you know what? The, at that time, the company didn't even have any EAP programs or any of that stuff that they have today. There was nothing to go. He says, you can, you know, he says, you could take a leave. You could take your vacation and go into a, uh, 28-day cycle, or you can try to do something else. He says, you know, there's a thing called AA. And so I said, well, you know, I don't even know about AA, whatever. So he said, well, uh, we know some people in your company. And so this guy, Doug C., took me to my first meeting. He was a guy that was like me, with a tie. We went to Castreet to my first meeting. Yeah, great, great meeting for me to go to as a professional. Okay, I walk in and there's the guys there talking about the 50 millimeter guns. Another guy's talking about drunkard and shit, and he's shooting up his. Uh, lawnmower and this other one said, yeah, I just got out of jail. I just spent, you know, 11 years from manslaughter, you know, and then I'm saying, Jesus, this is not from, this is, this is not me. This is not me. So I got so turned off and so depressed and I wrote this journal. I got my journal. I was, I was looking through stuff and I found all this stuff from 25 years ago that I still saved. And the journal said, you know, man, I don't think I'm going to go back to this. This thing really sucks. And the thing sucks. You know, these people are more, really, they're messed up. So Doug took me the next day at the Holiday Inn right near downtown, right near my office. He took me to a lunchtime meeting. I walked into the lunchtime meeting, and there was the city treasurer. There was another guy that was a lawyer. There was another guy that was the CEO of whatever. They all had ties on. There was a whole bunch of people in there. Uh, my first sponsor was in that meeting, and so I said, you know what? And then we talked, and we were just talking about you know, how it works and you know, stuff like that. I said, well, you know what? Maybe I'll give this a try. So I, did, I became the super... The super whiz kid, you know, with the 90 meetings in 90 days, you know, and I had all the answers and I had the pink cloud and people really loved me. The thing I loved about those first 90 days, though, is because I can remember opening up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and reading it. And every page I read that big book, I said, that's it. I'm an alcoholic. I mean, I get chills just telling you this. Oh, geez, that's what it is. I'm an alcoholic. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. That's it. I'm an alcoholic. Every page, I got through the 164 pages and then I started reading the stories. And I read the stories about those people and those people were sounded in every way, shape, or form like me. So I really knew that I was in the right place and I really knew that I really wanted to get this program and I really wanted to do it in the best way possible and do it the most effective way that I thought I could do it. So I went to the 90 meetings in 90 days and I got myself a sponsor. His name is Jim F. He died. He uh, was, was the guy who took me through my first fifth step. And I can remember, it's so funny, you guys, you remember, you, I mean, it, a lot of people have a lot of sobriety in this room, I know, and the people that are young, you're going you're gonna to find this stuff out. I can remember preparing for my first, for, when I wrote my first four step, I even have it in there to look at it, and I laugh, because it's so, 
I don't want to say infantile, but it's so different than who I am today 25 years later. And that's God bless God for giving me what I have today to see where I was from. So anyway, I was all kinds of nervous. I'm going to go and give my fifth step to my sponsor. And he did it over at Balboa Park. He said, let's meet someplace nice. So we went to this fountain. And I swear to you, you guys, I went back and looked at that fountain today. And we're going to talk about perceptions. I'm going to get into that because I really believe a lot in perception. When I did my, my fifth step, that fountain, I, it, could have been in, it could have been in Rome. It, 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 I thought it was this huge, blowing, you know, whatever thing. And, you know, because I, gave, I, I shared with him, and he laughed. And he says, he laughed at me. I said, I, here I am pouring my guts out to him, you know, everything about it. And he laughed at me. And I said, why are you laughing at me? He says, because he says, is that all there is? <laughs> Once again, in my mind, it was the worst thing in the world. And to him, he just laughed. And he said, that's nothing. Don't worry about it. But anyway, I went back and looked at that today. And it's just a little, it's a, it's a <laughs> It's got to be three or four feet high. And it's got like one little, you know, spitting out of it. <laughs> But I had the pink cloud and I had the whole nine yards because for the first time in my life I felt a little glimmer of what peace was all about. What I was, what I was feeling for me, what, was, what peace was all about. I shared with another human being the exact nature of what I thought was wrong with me. And he gave me absolution in no way, shape, or form like I got from a, a going to a priest. And he said, you know what, you're okay. And that's what I learned Coming every time I come to a meeting, I'm okay. I'm with, because I'm with, the, I'm with my family. I'm with the people that are, that are like me, that know me that know who I am and where I'm coming from and what I'm all about because a lot of us walk, to, our stories are all different but we walk the same pattern and we hit, what we have inside of our head is all the same. It really is to me. It's all the same. We're all messed. I can only speak for me. I was truly messed up. I truly was messed up. So anyway, I thought I was going to become president of AA. I obviously didn't have that. I thought I'd be like Kenny and go into the, uh, you know, I'd be a keynote speaker in Hawaii and he'd fly me over. That didn't happen. Okay. Little did I know that the, the most important thing that I got was a little bit of understanding about who and what I truly am. Okay, so what happened for me is I started doing what the steps told me to do and I started looking. I did little things, guys, that I, I really think that, that really work. I used to put little signs all over my bathroom wall and mirrors and stuff like that so when you wake up in the morning you'd be like, don't try let, you know. Ego equals easing God out. Fear is false evidence. I need to remember that shit. You know, when I'm shaving, I'm looking at all this stuff. And I did the Stuart Smalley stuff. And if you guys haven't done it, I recommend you do it. Walk, look in the mirror and look at yourself and say, you know what? You are good. You are. You belong here. You have the right to be here. You have a right. You know, you, you know you're, you're wonderful and whatever and God loves you. And I did it for a long time and I couldn't really even look at myself. I look at my picture, you guys, when I, was, when, I, when I came here when I was 32 years old and I look at pictures of myself today and I, I'm being humble. I look better today than I looked when I was 32. I really do. I look better today than I looked when I was 32. I look at my eyes and I was dead and I look at my eyes today and I'm alive. And that's, that's the thing that this program has given me. Is there's this little thing that's inside of us that's called our spirit and that's what I really wanted to go towards when I got out of here. Anybody, anybody who know who this Ebby Thatcher is? Yeah. Okay, Ebby Thatcher. I was listening. As I was preparing for this, I was going through some of my notes that I took in this little book of mine. And Ebby was the guy who took Bill to his first meeting. Okay. But what I didn't know about this, I want to just share this with you. The Oxford group was an attempt at a return to the first century Christianity. Okay, so the Oxford, I, was really, I really believe that there was a miracle that happened with Dr. Bob and, and Bill. 
I really believe that these two guys getting together and doing what they did, something clicked, something happened. This book of Alcoholics Anonymous is a, is, is a miracle of all miracles, that these two guys and the 30 other people that somehow got shafted and no one knows about that helped write the book. There were 32 of them, okay? There were 32 of them, but it wasn't just Dr. Bill, uh, it wasn't just, just Dr. Bob and Bill, it was 32 people. Anyhow, Abby took them there, and so, you know, uh, as, as uh, Father... Uh, uh, Joseph Martin says is that, you know, uh, Bill must, might have ran for a touchdown, but Abby handed him the ball. Okay, so me, that's what we talk about. And he says something. He said in 1960, and, uh, uh, Bill said something, no day passes that I don't remember that you brought me the message that saved me, and only God knows how many more uh, ineffection Bill. So Bill really thought that too. Father Joseph Martin, if you haven't seen the Chalk Talks and Alcoholism, I really recommend watching them, getting the book, reading the book. For me, it was really, really cool to do. He talks about Dr. Bob and how Dr. Bob put the, put the 12 steps into six words. That the first three, one, two, and three, were to trust God. And that steps four through 11 were to clean house. And that 12th one was to help others. So, trust God, clean house, help others. To me, when I look at the 12 steps, what I like to share is that it's, it's a, the, first, the first few steps are stopping what you're doing, the next steps are turning around, and the third step and the last part's going a different path. So, I mean, it's the people, they work the steps and do what they need to do. They're going to trust God, clean house, and help others. They're going to stop what they're doing, they're going to change, and then they're going to go down a different path. Because, to me, I believe that there's only three things that can happen to me as an alcoholic. I can either die, recover, or I can go insane. Those are the only three options that I had available to me. The only options that I still have available to me is to, is to either recover, die, or go insane. And I think I'll choose the one about recover. Doc, Father Martins also talks about a definition of the alcoholic that I want to share with you because it's the one that I believe the most. He says that an alcoholic is someone whose drinking causes severe life problems. Okay? And he said that's all it is. And that's truly what it is to me. That an alcoholic is a person who allows alcohol to cause problems in your life. If you don't have problems being caused by alcohol in your life, you're not an alcoholic. Simple as that. And they, why do we drink? Alcoholics drink because we're alcoholics. That's why we drink. That's why I drink. Insanity is doing the same thing, right? Denial. Anyway. So anyway, my past started that. I did that. So then I started hooking up with some of these water walkers, and you know who you are, and with Donnie T, I always thought I was going to mention Donnie because Donnie would talk about the fourth dimension and we talk all the time about spirituality and we talk about the fact that, you know, there's more to this program, just 12 steps, you know, like, man, there's like a fourth dimension, man. You know, and then Donnie would get so impassioned about it and his eyes would be electric and, you know, and, and you know, but you looked at his eyes and there were the eyes of God and that guy was talking the truth to me. There's a lot of the water walkers, a lot of people that I know in this program that are talking the truth. This guy right here talks the truth and it comes out every time he opens his mouth and you can see it in his eyes. So anyway, you just, you just, he, we, so I said, okay, well, what are we going to do? He said, well, man, there's a whole thing. You can go Buddhist, you know, you can do uh, chants, you can do uh, manifestations, and you could go and science of mind. So what I found, I found was the science of mind, which is Ernest Holmes' book, and I found out that, that uh, uh, either Dr. Bob or Bill Wilson were friends, and a lot of what we say in our book is in science of mind. A lot of the beliefs that are in science of mind are are the beliefs that are in our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. In addition to that, I started reading Emma Fox. Everybody knows about Emmett Fox. I had, there's a whole five of them, but the one that I love is the Emmett Fox Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Okay, and the reason I love this is because what we started talking about when Donnie and I and the Water Walkers and all of us 20 years ago started talking about this stuff, we, and I'm sure we weren't the first ones to do it. 
But the reason we talked about it was because of the fact that I didn't like the Bible. I didn't like religion. I didn't like the guilt that came from it. So I started reading stuff by Emmett Fox. And Emmett Fox said, the first thing you do with the Bible is you take all the people out of it. Okay, so it's, it's, not, it's not stories about people, but there's truths in there. And I want to share with you this one because it makes so much sense to me. That's why I read all this stuff. And he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And he's saying that, you know, when you read the Bible, the Bible says, you know, and when the multitudes gathered, Jesus, Jesus went to a mountain and prayed. And when he became set, he came down and preached. Nice story. But if you take the people out of it, okay, you talk about the multitudes. And that's, to me, my thoughts that I have in my brain at any given time. Okay, what do I have to do with it? I have to go to the mountain and pray or meditate or stop whatever's going on until I become set. And then when I become set, then I come down and do what I deal with whatever I want to deal with. I said, wow, that's a really unique concept and a really interesting way to look at life because it's not so much this story about nice, you know, with the loaves and fishes and whatever he did with the Beatitudes afterwards, but there's a little tool that I could put in my little toolbox. I almost brought two toolboxes, you guys. I mean, I was really thinking about how I was going to really impress you and have the toolbox that I had in my life before AA and the box that I have in my, uh, the toolbox I had in my life and one was going to be the old fishing one that was all beat up and rusted and this one's going to be brand new. But what was in that box was fear, uh, ego, denial, Hatred, all that stuff. That was what the box I had before I got to AA. And this one's all about love, and it's all about acceptance, and it's all about forgiveness, it's all about you know being being one with my fellows and being of service to other people, and in that that stuff. So that's a little different from what I had before. So anyway, I started doing this whole thing with conscious conscious, conscious contact with God because of uh, what we talked about in Water Walkers, Fourth Dimension, and all this. Getting real radical and doing all this stuff. So I really started doing meditation. I even went so far as to become a Buddhist. And I went and got, you know, I got my, my Buddhist rings and I got my chants and I got my book. I didn't, I didn't bring it, but I started doing the Buddhist stuff and I started chanting. And you know what I realized about that is that, that the thing about this whole stuff to me, stuff, this spiritual stuff, is this spiritual stuff is the, is, is the same. It just has different packages. You know, it's just packaged differently. Buddhists do with Om and chanting, and, you know, uh, Christians do with dancing and whatever they do, and Sufis do with dancing and whatever they do, and Christians do it by killing people. I didn't say that. Didn't say that. No, they, Christians do it by, you know, what, how they do it. Okay, everybody does it differently. Strike that from the tape, please. Anyway, yeah. Like God thought him, I'll put him on a t-shirt. Anyway. So anyway, all I, all I can say is that I started doing prayer and meditation and trying to improve my conscious contact with God because what the book told me, and I still have the book, and I still have the notes that I have on the side of my book. It says about daily maintenance, page 84 and 85, morning meditation, 86 to 88. Those are the two important things to me. Every day I read those. So 25 years, 9,233 days later, I still read those because to me that's the only way that I'm going to stay sober. Because on a daily basis I'm going to do a daily maintenance and I'm going to do a, a morning meditation so I can go out there Work with God to do what I need to do. Okay. You know, we talk about uh, about the fellowship and what's important about the fellowship. There's so many people that I got to know over the last 25 years, and a lot of them are gone. Stu and Harriet, they, they passed on. Uh, Jim F., who was my sponsor. You know, a lot of people are in failing health and whatever. I can remember going, when I was in the program for the first year, Jim took me to a meeting over in North Park, and they, we met at a person's house. And those, person, those people knew the founding fathers, the 32. And it, it was, to me, it was, it was so beautiful to be in that house and have a cup of coffee and to realize that's what it started like. Okay, that's what the guys did when they first started the program. So, you know, 
Once again, you guys, cunning, powerful, and baffling. Then I started going into Terry Cole Whitaker, you know, and I went to her for a while. Then I went to Sharon Stroud for a while. You know, what you think of me is none of my business. That's what Terry Cole Whitaker said. You know, so what I was getting from these people, though, what I was getting from these people was AA philosophy just packaged differently. You know, she had a little more chutzpah with the way she did it and stuff like that. Um, and then I went to uh, Kathy Hearns, and I started teaching The Course in Miracles. And The Course in Miracles, uh, we talked a lot about it. I don't know if anybody knows what The Course in Miracles, but The Course in Miracles was something that this lady from New York said that she had this voice inside of her saying that she needed to, dic- to take dictation. So she would take dictation. And the guy that she was working with at Columbia was a, a guy followed by the name of Bill Thedford who was passed on. And he said, well, you know what? Why don't you just take the dictation? Bring it in, we'll talk about it, and if it's a bunch of garbage, then it's a bunch of garbage. If it's not a bunch of garbage, maybe it's something we could do. Well, anyway, she took the dictation down. She didn't even know what it meant. She just wrote whatever was coming through this channel, and I believe it was a channel because she never got the Course in Miracles. And it says this is a Course in Miracles. It's a required course. Only the time you take of it is voluntary. Free will does not mean that you can establish the curriculum. It means only that you can elect to, to have what you want at any given time. The Course's aim is not to teach the meaning of love, okay, because... For that's beyond what can be taught. It does aim at, however, removing the blocks to the awareness of love's presence, which is your natural inheritance. The opposite of love is fear. Okay, that's, if you read the big book, that's what the book talks about all the time. Fourth step, fear, 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 fear. Get into love, get into action, get into doing what you're doing. So the opposite of love is fear, but what's all-encompassing can have no opposite. So what's all-encompassing can have no opposite. Therefore, this course can be summed up very simply in this way, in, in this way that nothing real can be threatened and nothing unreal exists and herein lies the peace of God. I get chills because I think that's the essence of my AA program. That nothing real can be threatened, nothing unreal exists and herein lies the peace of God. So when I started doing the little, the, 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 the smally stuff and, and starting to find out who I was and how wonderful and beautiful I am inside and I'm good enough and whatever, that started coming through. It really started coming through. You know, today, today, what is it like today? Am I perfect? My wife says, you better not lie and tell her it's perfect. Tell everybody's perfect. And it's not perfect. It's not perfect. I still have my old foibles. I still, I'm still batshit crazy. I'm still that alcoholic kid from Niagara Falls, New York. But what I'm not is I'm not somebody who's going to be deceitful and, and, and I'm not going to try to get, get even with you and I'm not going to operate from fear and I'm not going to try to get something from you that I don't believe I deserve. You know, the St. Francis of Assisi prayer is in my pocket now because what St. Francis of Assisi said is what I believe. Lord, make me instrument of, your, of thy peace where there is hatred, may I so love. To me, that's what this stuff is all about. This is what the program's all about. This is why I try to carry the message in everything that I do. I've seen people, we had somebody share a meeting on last Monday or the Monday before. He's talking about a guy who's got 32 years and another one had 38 years and the guy punched the other guy in the face and the other guy hit him with his cane. <laughs> Where in the big book does it talk about doing that, okay? It talks, the big book really talks about it. The big book to me talks about nothing but getting, to, getting out of your own way, turning your will over to the care of God, listening to what God has to say. The only reason I can listen to what God has to say is if I shut my brain up. That's why I do prayer and meditation. That's why I meditate a lot. When I started the meditations, I was talking to Paul the other, before the meeting started a, a couple weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, that you have to really stop stop. It's amazing. When, you start, when I started meditating and started thinking about what was going on in my brain, I mean, it was just... They call it the committee. Everybody talks about the committee. But what it is is a, just all these random thoughts of shit. It's all it is. It's, it's random thoughts of garbage. It's like, you know, like, oh, good, the plumber's coming over, so that means I'm going to have a leak for the next six months. You know, what the... 
what's that got to do with anything? Or, you know, it's just something just so diverse in the whole thing. But what it's all about is shutting your mind down and shutting it down so you can listen to the will of God. And what I think happens with that, and I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience, manifestation happens. And that's something that we don't talk about in the program. But I truly believe that it's real. That if you clear your mind and do things from a position, a solid position, I'm going to share with you two thoughts that I had about manifestation. The first one, I was playing right field in a baseball game at a park at night. And uh, I said to myself, you know what, the lights are really crappy out here. If anybody hits a high fly ball, I'm not going to be able to see it. Bam. Literally, next pitch, high fly ball, right to me. Right to me. Couldn't see it worth a damn. Thing came right down, hit me right in the t- right on the side of the temple of my eye. I went completely gray. My eye went completely gray. And I can remember this because it was it was it must have been real. And it must have been true. And it must have been honest. Because I said, God, something happened here. If this is what it's supposed to be, then I accept it. And I accept your will for me. But if there's something else, please <laughs> do something. I meant that. Do something. It started coming back. I started seeing a little less gray, a little less gray. A little. I went to an ophthalmologic surgeon the next day, and he said, I have, never seen an, I have never seen an optic nerve click off and click back on. If it's off, it's off. If it's on, it's on. When I was teaching the Course in Miracles, people would come in and say, listen, I've got a kidney. I'm going to have to go on dialysis. And you know, we pray. We do whatever. The next week, the dialysis wasn't there. I'm not saying that this... You know, the only, the only word that ever changed in the, in the book Alcoholics Honest Me is the one about spiritual experience and spiritual awareness. That at first was a spiritual experience and now it's a spiritual awareness because they said that not everybody's going to have a spiritual experience. I had a spiritual experience. When I was going through my divorce in my second year of sobriety, between my second and third year of sobriety, I can remember I was running over by Mission Gorge Road by the golf course and I said, God, I mean, I had the pain and I had the hole and everybody knows what I'm talking about. I had the pain, I had the hole. I said, God, please do something. This sucks. This stinks. And I felt like, like it was like a lightning bolt hit me in the chest and radiated down my arms. Three times. I mean, I sound nuts, don't I? It hit, but it did. Boom, boom, boom. And, it, and you know what? The pain was gone. And I've never felt that pain again. And I've never felt that loss again. I really I believe until I die that God touched my soul and healed my soul. And I had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps. And that's the message that I want to carry to everybody, and that's the message I want people to believe. Anyway. Time to shut it up. Okay, good. I'm I'm going to be a one-tape guy and not have him throw the tape in. So I just want to tell you that if if you continue to do what you're doing, if if you want what the program has, you have to really do a lot of internal work. That's why Dr. Bob said that the first three steps... Are, are one part of it, and then it's 4 through 11, and 4 through 11 is cleaning house. You need to become a different person. I needed to become a different person. I'm Jack today. That's a hell of a lot different than Jack of 1982. And uh, I want to thank you all for being here and for letting me share.